Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Then Again Podcast. It's Glenn. And Marie. And we are going to bore everyone to death today. Yay! Because you are here to listen to us tell you what some of our favorite history books are. This is an abridged version. This is not a complete list. Yes. Otherwise... I don't think we would have any more podcast ever. It would just be us talking about I would books. just read the list of my books from librarything.com. But, uh, but no, I mean, many of you have listened to us. You know enough about us to know that we have particular areas of, of interest and things that have influenced us. So we thought it would be maybe fun to just pick a few of the books that we have read that have influenced us, that we just liked reading, that we probably have read more than once, more than twice, more than three times. Well, you know, if it's your favorite. Why not? Why not? Why not? Just keep going. So I'm going to let ladies go first. And in, I'm sure probably no particular order, Marie, Oh, drop the first tome for us. Yeah, so I limited myself to not talking about historical fashion books because otherwise we would just be here all day. Yes, uh, now to that point, I'm also excluding all the books on uniforms and weapons and equipment and shoes and bread bags and buckles and plates and shoestrings and things like that. Those are reference books. Exactly. I might. Ha- I, I had one reference book sneak in here, but otherwise these are more fun. Like, kind of like you could read like a novel books, right? Right. <laughs> right. So I did perhaps... Um, Organize mine in chronological order. Uh, and first off, we have Elizabeth, The Struggle for the Throne by David Starkey. It is a bold and fresh biography, says Amanda Foreman on the front cover. <laughs> I really like this one because it talks about Elizabeth before she becomes queen. It talks about her, as this title suggests, her struggle for the throne. She was the third child of King Henry VIII. No one thought she was going to get to be queen. She had an older brother. She had, well, actually a younger brother, but in line of succession, he goes first. And then she also had an older sister. So, like, she was literally last in line in the line of succession. So no one thought she was ever going to be queen, but then she became one of England's best queens. And I think this book really sets up why she was such a good queen. And that's because her life up until she got to be queen was kind of rough. Uh, I mean, she was still a royal and had incredible privilege, but also, you know, your sister tries to kill you. Uh, you have, like, a bunch of stepmoms that are kind of, you know, not the best. You are your dad's greatest disappointment ever. Yeah. Capital D. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it's kind of a rough start there, you know, when your mom gets beheaded when you're, like, two. So... <laughs> Yeah, I just think she she was literally like the redheaded stepchild uh, to a lot of the queens going forward. And I think this just really sets up a nice look at her life and essentially why she became such a good ruler and had such good diplomacy skills. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, and there's a bunch of uh, movies out about Elizabeth, too. But the, then the author of that one, I know David Starkey has done some documentaries and you've probably if. Y'all watch those. He's great. He's one of those super animated British historians who wants to talk about everything in England. So it's it's a, he's a really good historian, a really good presenter. He's a really good writer, too, because it's an interesting book. It reads like a novel. It doesn't read like, because we've all read those books where you're just like, history is interesting, but how did you make it boring? Speaking of books like that, I have my <laughs> first one. I have my first one here. It's a super oldie, but a goodie. 
the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. That's right. It's an old... Now, to, you know, to be fair, I have not read this in the original Greek. That's what my next question was. No, I have not. Okay. I have read the landmark version of it, which was a, uh, a translation, of course. But it's very... It is both dense and thick, uh, written in the ancient Greek style, but it does tell the story of one of the most important and foundational struggles, not only in the ancient world, but one that echoes through to us this very day, the, the struggle between Athens and Sparta. Athens, the home of democracy, of Socrates, of the, the free thought, the, the free market, and the navy over here. You have Sparta, the Spartans, all warriors, all tough, only an army. Uh, they've enslaved everyone around them to do their job so they can focus on being soldiers. Whereas in Athens, are a little bit of everything, and you get these two philosophically different, economically different. They're still Greeks, but they're so different. And the struggles that they and their allies have really sort of have, in, in the way Thucydides describes it, it goes through the entire struggle, and this is a this is a thirty year war in the ancient world. There are simply not that many resources to go around in the ancient world, and yet they make it last for thirty years. Impressive, isn't it? And in the, and in the end, Sparta does win, but then Sparta can't handle the victory, and the the Persians sort of come in and take over anyway. So, but you know the the Peloponnesian War, and this is something that has been looked at by a lot of different cultures since. England picked this up during the Napoleonic Wars and on into World War I because they were trying to juxtapose that naval power versus land power and take hints from it. Recent folks in the White House, uh, including Obama and Trump, have had their cabinets read this book so that they could kind of get an insight onto how these... Because remember, they share religion, they share language, they share economies, they share a landmass. And so, in some ways, it seems like a struggle within one society. A civil war. A civil war, if you will. And, and so, it, it's, it's really fascinating. It is, folks, it is a dry read. You have to be into this. You have to seek this out and want to read it. But if you, if you do and you get through it, there is a lot in there. That It's not only a really good story, but it's, it's ripped from today's headlines. So, that's, the, that's Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War. Next up, we have The Salem Witchcraft Trials, A Legal History by Peter Charles Hoffer. It is a nice, quick read. It is only about, let's see, 150 pages if you don't count the timeline references and index in the back. Um, now, this is a fun one because I was assigned to read this in one of my college courses, uh, and it was indeed by my professor. So... He had us. He had us read a lot. Pump up those book sales. He definitely did. We had we had several books to read, and they were all mysteriously by him. Wow. I know, right? But I thought this was really interesting because it still reads like a like a fun book, right? It says like you know a legal history. You think it's going to be like this big law book that is just the recounting of the trials, and I mean, of course, they reference that a lot, but. You know, it has, you know, chapter one, chapter two. It still reads like a, a chapter book, essentially. It starts out with newcomers on the road to Salem. And it, it kind of goes through the story of the community as well as the legal history. It gives more insight and context to it, uh, which is just 
such a fascinating time in American history. So it's it's pretty objective, though. It's not like I mean, the way from what it sounds like you're saying, they're looking at it from a very objective perspective. It's not a we're trying to show the the witches were witches and the people trying to to burn them were very very bad. It's a very here are the facts. More or less, yes. I mean, it's hard to read through it and see, ah, oh, yes, these people that they hung obviously deserved it. You know, it doesn't... <laughs> right. It doesn't. You don't come away with that feeling when you read the book. But, you know, I think you get a pretty good sense of exactly what happened without too many arguments. Because, again, it's only 150 or so pages. It, it doesn't um, expound upon different things that much it it is pretty much like here are the facts here's what happened here's what you need to know here's the down low you know get that and uh then you'll understand essentially what happened it's a pleasant book to read by the fire oh no well none yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes and then it also does have a nice little timeline in the back of just the events that happened that is you know essentially all of the Salem Witch Trials. Well, for those of you that know me, you know you're not going to get through this list without something about the Normans and the Norman Conquest. So this is one of those books by a fellow named R. Allen Brown called, very creatively, The Normans and the Norman Conquest. Wow, I wonder what it's about. (laughs) There's no telling, but I'll give you a spoiler. It's about the Normans. And this was one of the beginnings of my love for Norman history and and the conquest and Hastings and all that because long ago before before Amazon existed you would get print catalogs in the post from places like Barnes and Noble and they had super discount books and so I saved up money and I got some super discount books and this one came in and was like oh Norman's oh that's kind of interesting and I read it and it was it's not just the Battle of Hastings he basically takes it and looks at Here's how Normandy's, I mean, it's, it's the history, right? Here's how Normandy started. Here's how the, Duke, the Dukes came to be. Here are the struggles he faced. Here are some of the wars they got into. And then, of course, you do get to William, the conqueror, goes into England, and then how that affects England. And it's all right there in one pretty easy-to-read volume. And, and it, had, it doesn't have that many illustrations, unfortunately. But the more I loved this book, I started looking, and R. Allen Brown is one of those, again, one of those classic, you know, weird British historians who turns out has written a lot of books on the Norman Conquest and Normans and started the conference called the Battle Conference, which is held in the town of Battle. They're where the battle took place and has been going on now for, I think, 30 or 40 years. Every year they present papers and things. And he was he, he's basically the granddaddy of, of Norman history, of conquest history. And like so many good granddaddies of, of particular topics, he's come under fire lately because people have found more research and taken new views of things, and, and many of them are like, oh, he was just a, a little too celebratory about his subject and a little bit too much love and with, his, uh, with the people he wrote about. But they all end up with saying, but you know, he sure could tell a good story, and he was a really good historian. So even if the book is a little dated because it came out in the early 60s, I would still recommend it if that's if I had to pick one book about the Normans, this is it. So that's the it. Norman book. It's the Norm according to Glenn. Yes, according to Glenn. Very cool. So there you have it. So if you need to know anything about the Normans. No, not anything. Not anything? Just an overview. 
overview of the Normans. Yes. You got to buy a bunch of books if you want to know anything about the Normans. Okay. So it's a good starting point. It's place. a good starting point, yes. There we go. <laughs> Speaking of starting points, Jane Austen in context. So if you absolutely love Jane Austen and all of her novels, but you read it and you're just like, that was interesting, but also I feel like I missed a lot. Here we have Jane Austen in context to, you know, solve all of your problems with that matter because this is edited by Janet Todd. I th there's a lot of different contributors, I believe, with the different because it covers a lot of ground. So it's it's a thicker one. It has not it doesn't have exactly chapters. It has parts. There's part yeah. one, part two, part three. It's one of those. It's one. Academics like us, like the, the these are basically papers that were given at a conference or submitted somewhere, and it's a compilation. That's why it's edited by. And so, yeah, these papers can go in every which direction. Exactly. So part one is life and works. Part two is critical fortunes. Part three is historical and cultural context. I enjoy part three perhaps the most mm -hmm. because I do enjoy getting to read Jane Austen in the historical and cultural context in which she was writing because that way you get all of the fun humor and I think sometimes people read Jane Austen too seriously because she's like, ah, oh, this great author of British literature. And it's like, no, she it was almost satire. Like right. all of her books. Yeah, every there, there's a there's something funny on every page. Exactly. If you know what to look for. Exactly. Yeah. So read this book, especially part three, and then you will Think Jane Austen is absolutely a hilarious genius because she is. Because <laughs> she is. Yeah, so you can learn about agriculture, book production, cities, consumer goods, domestic architecture, dress. I do enjoy that one a lot. Mm -hmm. Education and accomplishment, food, land ownership, landscape, literary science, manners, medicine, illness, disease, money, nationalism, and empire, pastimes. It goes on and on. But that's just a, a little overview. So basically, yeah, this is an overview of England in the early 1800s. Exactly. But with the idea of it being kind of centered around Jane Austen, which makes it a little bit more fun and not as dry, perhaps. Fair enough. Let's see. What's my next? Oh, oh, yes. Um, I've got a great Revolutionary War book here that was revolutionary in its own right called With Zeal and Bayonets Only. The British Army in North America during the American Revolution by a fellow named Matthew Hasler Spring. And this is one that a lot of you probably have never heard of or never even thought of. But what I love about it is it goes and it looks at the British Army in the American Revolution in North America. And it kills all those myths of everyone in goofy long red coats and black hats marching in lockstep up and down fields while rebels shoot at them from behind trees. It looks at how the soldiers were recruited in England, how they were transported over, how their equipment changed over the course of the war, how their tactics changed over the course of the war until you get to the point where, you know, we've heard about Washington and and von Steuben at Valley Forge teaching the Continental Army to fight, quote, like the British Army, very disciplined, very linear formations and things like that. But then this book points out, by the time von Steuben's teaching them how the British Army fights, quote, unquote, the British Army has begun to evolve to deal with Americans in an American context, geographically, politically, socially, and militarily. And how they're not in those big, long, straight lines anymore. They're in open formations. 
they're jogging and running towards the Americans trying to get to them and stick them with a bayonet before they can reload. Lots of different things, how they're changing their uniforms, their hats, and really how the British faced so many different challenges that we don't think about. For example, the British Army is recruited in England, right? That means every time a British soldier gets wounded or killed, its replacement, his replacement, has to come from 3,000 miles away and be brought up to speed with all the new things the Army's doing. And it shows a very evolutionary Army, and it shows how the Army is using its weapons. It shows how the Army is being commanded. This is not the Army where the British officers are very effete and stupid and, oh dear, I say, what? Bring me a cup of tea while we begin this battle. I say, what, what? That is not how the officers were. And this book does a really good job in showing this. And when this book came out, oh, about 10 or 12 years ago, it totally changed the landscape, not just from history, but for reenactors too. Because, you know, reenactors very often get the stuff and portray the tropes, the myth of what they think the thing they're portraying is, especially British soldiers. And when this book came out, it kicked off this whole new ramp of examinations of uniform and some Americans that had been recruited into the British Army, Hessians who had originally come over, deserted from the Hessian Army, deserted to the Americans, didn't much like the Americans, and then re-signed up into the British Army, which upset... It's very complicated. It's all very complicated, but it's really cool. So with zeal and bayonets only, highly recommended if you're going to read a book on the American Revolution. That's it. My, uh, there's no segue to get to this one. It is Royal Love Stories, <laughs> the tales behind the real-life romances of Europe's kings and queens. Well, you're sp- well speaking of zeal. Be- speaking of zeal. <laughs> this one's really fun. This one has lots of pictures. Uh, It has a beautiful format and layout that it makes it feel almost like a scrapbook, you know? Cool. Kind of. Oh, yes. I see. I love those. Yes. I love those. So you feel like you're just, you know, reading through uh, people's love stories in their own little fun scrapbook, but you still get fun historical information. It starts out, you know, like medieval. Uh, Let's see. Which one's the first one? Peter, the first of Portugal, and Inez de Castro. Some of them are uh, more more romantic than others. Some of them are kind of uh, not great every <laughs> once in a while. You know, like, uh, it didn't really turn out that great for Louis and Marie Antoinette, you know? It goes great for a while. A little bit. Very short time. And then, and then, and then there's a the revolution. Short, oh, no. Yes, you could say that. <laughs> and it goes all the way up to... Everyone's favorite, Prince William and Catherine Middleton. So that's the, the last one that's covered in this book. I don't know if they've done like a an updated one that might include more royal marriages that have happened since 2011, but uh, <laughs> that's that's where we're at with this one. I don't think there have been any major royal weddings since 2011. Uh, Prince Harry to Meghan Markle. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, that doesn't count because he's officially on the outs with the royal family. He is. Take that. Now, we could talk, you know, we're not going to talk about spare yet, but (laughs) it's not quite a historical account. It's more modern. (laughs) Give us like 30 years and then maybe we'll do a program on it. Back and go, oh dear, that was terrible. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I've got one that I only recently discovered too. There was, there used to be a 
a press called the Beehive Press in Savannah, and they always did these Georgia-specific histories, and they were all so good. And the Beehive Press ended up, it didn't go out of business, but it basically wasn't printing books anymore, and it was picked up by another publisher, and they still publish things under the Beehive Press, Beehive Press, and they have the, you know, the, the body of work. But it's all Georgia-specific, and they're the ones who have reprinted a lot of Oglethorpe's letters. They've done personal accounts of, you know, women on plantations and slave life and everything. But they have this one book called A Wilderness, Still the Cradle of Nature by a guy named Edward Cashin, who's a guy from Augusta. And what he's done, he's taken these accounts of the early Georgia frontier, say post-independence, say from about... Oh, 1790 up until about 1840. And he has compiled them. So there are original accounts. It's, it's a compilation of original accounts of people who lived there, of people who traveled through there and made comments on the things that they saw. And it is both, it is heartwarming, it is embarrassing, it is hilarious, it is atrocious. Some of the things, you know, and, and there's there's a little bit of a, because, you know, many of the people that came through were well-educated folks from outside the South, people coming from England, people coming from, from New England and things like that, taking a trip through the backwoods to see all these Georgia backwoods people, to get somewhere or just to experience the frontier. And the great thing about it is they talk about their trips. They talk about where are we going to stay? Well, we have to stay with this one family. And it was basically just a shack and they put us, out in what I thought was a corn crib, turned out later it was, and, you know, bugs were coming in, and we never got a night's sleep because there was an owl up in the rafters that kept calling out, and I think a rat ran across my face, but it talks about the dress, uh, how people dressed, you know, the different qualities of style, and people who thought they were dressing very fancy, how they fixed their hair, the food that they had, the type of platters that the food was served on. And so it goes into this really interesting material culture description, but it's not just the material culture, it's how they interact one with another. And you see a gamut of Georgia frontier society from the absolute, as the term was was used, the poorest white trash barefoot out on the frontier, who ironically turned out to be some of the, the better people to the visitors. And then some of the ones who had uh, a little bit of airs they were putting on, trying to match their social betters, and did not do a very good job of it. But it is a really fascinating book. If you are interested in what the frontier on Georgia was really like, up through Savannah, up through Augusta, and up into the Piedmont, check this book out. It's still in print. It's not very expensive. A Wilderness Still the Cradle of Nature, and it is a fantastically interesting read. And it's like little short segments. It's not like you have to sit down and read the entire thing. You can read one or two adventures and then put it down and come back to it. So check that one out, people. My next one also has a Southern bent. It is called Mothers of Invention, Women of the Slaveholding South in the American Civil War by Drew uh, Gilpin Faust. Yes, I know that guy. Okay, good. I, was yeah. just, I saw the AU and I was like, oh, that makes an interesting sound, doesn't it? Uh, yes. So I love studying the American Civil War, especially women's roles in the American Civil War. And I think that this one is really interesting because women of this social class, of the more upper middle to elite social class, are generally the ones who, they, of course, they keep diaries and letters, 
but they also are like not supposed to be that public they're not supposed to be like out about sharing their opinions in newspapers so all of this stuff kind of comes out after the war years later and then we get to kind of you know literally wade through their their lives to see Mm -hmm. exactly what was going on and I I have a lot of diaries from the American Civil War of people's experiences but I think what Mothers of Invention does really well is kind of compile all of those experiences into one not too long book it's about 300 pages and it chronicles the experience of those upper class southern women uh, in such a way that kind of takes you through their view of the war it starts out with um all the relations of life uh and then chapter one is what shall we do women confront the crisis because southern women were raised to be ladies and they're not supposed to work they're supposed to be in the house they're not supposed to go outside and and work essentially i learned that from the very in-depth documentary gone with the wind oh good yes absolutely that is every historian's favorite documentary we don't go around trying to constantly correct myths that that perpetuated um (laughs) um (laughs) so uh, it talks about this feminine world that essentially comes to a crashing halt and dissolution at the beginning of the war. And they are then forced to go outside of the home and to work in various different roles. You have a lot of women trying to manage their estates, essentially their their plantations that they had somewhat been involved in, but perhaps not as much as they now are with husbands being gone or dead. And then you have women who are going outside the home to be nurses. You have women going outside the home to essentially fill jobs and try to earn payment as well, just in various roles. And then I think it's very interesting because it goes on, because, again, we're talking about Southern women here. So it goes on and it talks about the enemies in our households, um, Confederate women in slavery. And then also it just it's so interesting to see it from their perspective, because I think this is one of the perspectives that is perhaps – when you think of like those big general overview books, this is not a perspective that's usually included in it. You know, when you think about the Civil War, you don't think about rich Southern women, you know, sitting at home and then also not sitting at home, being forced to go outside right. the home. Especially as the war drug on, I'm sure. And on and on because, it, it, you know, it, as the book goes on, the war goes on and it, it continues <laughs> to chronicle it in that way. So it's just, I, I just think it's so interesting just the way that it's written and just the information that it reveals it does it has some pictures not a lot but some in in case that you know encourages you to read it or (laughs) a little bit more but yes lots of just pictures of women from the south i don't know i just i think this is just an incredibly interesting look of a a perspective that is not generally covered in other books well you know and we're, we're not even through our list yet but i think it's interesting how both of us have picked a couple of books that are that are personal accounts, right? They're they're not written by historians. They're stuff historians have found and compiled because people's experiences in their own words are just fascinating. And so, and you know they're they're a primary source, people. And they're it's you just get closer to the time and the place and the feelings when you get those personal accounts rather than being translated through a historian's window. No matter how good the historian is. There's nothing like that that raw, you are there uh, activity. 
Now, you you had your The Salem Witchcraft from a legal, a legal History, which is a good book, but with a dull-sounding title. It does. I, I feel like it could have a much spicier title. I have a book that also is a good book with a dull title. <laughs> Other People's Money, How Banking Works in the Early American Republic. Isn't it fascinating? This is by Sharon Ann Murphy. And I did, I, I will confess, I did not out, I did not set out to read this book. But in, you know, I'm teaching classes, one of the great things about teaching is that it makes you learn things you don't normally, you wouldn't normally seek out yourself. You have to learn it so that you can be the provider of perspective to, to others. And in teaching those classes, I realized that a lot of that early part of American history was financial. I realized, you know, the Bank of the U.S., and, and how things were financed and gold ver- the, the great gold versus silver debate from the, the Gilded Age, it had always confused the heck out of me. So I'm like, you know what? I probably need to find a book and do some digging and get a better understanding of this. And I found this book and I got it. And I will confess, I was fascinated. I got so into this book. It's not, it's not very big. I think it's only, it's less than 200 pages. But she goes through in a very layman's style and explains to you, okay, you know, at the end of the revolution, there was this debt, and here's how they fixed it, and here's how banks worked, and here's how the federal government, Bank of the U.S. worked, and here's how credit was done, and loans, and money, and gold and silver coinage versus paper money, and interest, and all that stuff that sounds kind of dull, but the way she describes it, it puts so much more of that early American history into context. Because think today how often every day we run into having to spend money. Every day. Every day. Or get paid. Or pull out a credit card. Or make a payment on our car loan or something like that. Money is ever-present in throughout history. And so this book does a great job not only of looking at those big, what was the Bank of the U.S., but how it filters down to everyday people. And when they would go to the bank to get a loan... And they would walk out. It's a bank that is chartered by the state, owned. It's a private bank. Someone goes in to get a loan, and they come out with $200 in paper money that says the, the Bank of Chatham. Is that good? How do you know it's good? How, where can you spend it? How do you know? You know, all those things. And this book goes into it. And it has really helped me understand why people were so concerned with the Bank of the U.S. and the gold versus silver standard and how they were going to get loans to afford their farm. And moving into the Civil War, how the U.S. government up until that point had never printed paper money. But they had to pay for that war. And that's how we get greenback dollars. If you want to know more about that, check out this book with a dreadful title but a fascinating subject, Other People's Money. Now, this is my reference book that snuck in because <laughs> it's just too good. And it is the Encyclopedia of Civil War Medicine by Glenda R. Stroderlein. There we go. So it, it's an encyclopedia, but focused on Civil War medicine, which I think is just incredibly fascinating. I will sit here and just read it like a book. Right. We do that sometimes, folks. Actually, we do that a lot. Perhaps more than we would like to admit. But... It's fine. Um, so it is in alphabetical order, and it starts off with absolutely the first letter of the, you know, alphabet, A. So it starts off with alcohol, abuse of. 
And it goes on for a, about a page or so about the abuse of alcohol. Uh, then provides a bibliography that you can go and check out more books about the abuse of alcohol in the American Civil War and its use in medicine. And then it also says, see alcohol, medicinal uses of Army Medical Museum, John Hill, hospitals, field hospitals, general. I assume that it should be somebody else's general, but it just says general. Matrons, <laughs> medical, you know, it, 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 I'm going to stop reading there because it yes. goes on for a long time. But... It's exhaustive. Yes, it, it goes through everything. And then it has ambulance trains, ambulances, amputation, and then, you know, references other parts of the book if you want to get more information because it goes on in other places more about certain things. But it is, it's a biggin. It's, it's, it's kind of a brick, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's physically large all the other ones are like the normal kind of like paperback size this one's right. this one could be a coffee table book and it's still 350 something pages so i highly recommend it if you like civil war medicine if you don't like civil war medicine probably don't read the encyclopedia of it right. <laughs> but if you're really interested in getting a super in-depth view of it and it's not just about the people or their experiences is about the material culture, which I think is the most fascinating because it, you're, you know, people will reference things and then it's like, okay, but what, like, what did they use? Like, of course they had, you know, sedatives that put people to sleep, but what did they use and how did they do it? I'm going to look up cat gut and find out what it actually is. It's things like that. Cat gut. No, I mean, I mean, it actually is cat gut, but it's cat gut to sew people together with. I wonder if it's in there. No, that's what I'm saying. I was like, I want to read it. It may say sea sutures. <laughs> we have cat raw, cat raw, but that's not cat. Oh, what do they use cat gut for? For sutures. Oh, okay, gross. Very. Should we should we I look just, up stitches or sutures? Yeah, look up yeah, sutures. Yeah. I just stumped the encyclopedia. <laughs> there we go. Oh, we got scurvy. Okay. Orange, you glad you looked that up? Uh, <laughs> Only a nerd. <laughs> I did it. I stumped the encyclopedia. Yep. Yep. Typical Glenn. I don't think we have, we don't have stitches in here. I guess they thought we have substitutes for supplies. (laughs) That'll that'll work. That'll work. Oh, well. Yeah, but it doesn't look like we have stitches in here. We have, you know, surgeons. Surgeons get stitches. And they did stitches. But yeah, no. That's... That's it. Nope. No stitches. No cat guts. But yes, I think it's incredibly interesting. I like it for research. I like it for just diving in to have a better knowledge of Civil War medicine for, you know, when we do programs about that here, when I get to portray a Civil War nurse, which is my first and perhaps therefore favorite uh, portrayal. Well, my next book is not about Hastings, but it is by Hastings. Max Hastings. Uh, His book called Overlord... D-Day and the Battle for Normandy. Why this one, our audiences may ask. There are a trillion books out there about D-Day and the Battle for Normandy in World War II. And I've read a lot of them. I have a lot of them. But this one, I think, intrigued me because it is written, first of all, by another British historian, which means you're going to get a British perspective on things and not necessarily the rah-rah America view of D-Day. And don't get me wrong, America, this was sort of like 
one of the United States' big moments in World War II, uh, all the books by Stephen Andro, Ambrose, Band of Brothers, you know, Saving Private Ryan. This is D Day is the uh, pivotal American event in World War II. But I also think that makes it overdone. I wanted to know what other people thought of this. And so Max Hastings has done this book and he kind of takes to task some of these American historians who put too much emphasis on it. He points out that, you know, this is, this is also a major effort by the British because the British had been fighting since 1940 everywhere in the world. And so could they put as much into Normandy? No, because they were everywhere else and had been two years longer than the Americans. And he talks about the struggles of the British Army. He talks about the roles that the, the British tanks had how, they had, how they actually landed in the more difficult terrain and against the more difficult foes in Normandy than the Americans had. And so, you know, I'm not going to go into it. Most of you, if you're not familiar with the Normandy campaign, most of you probably are, but if you're not, there's plenty of books out there. But if you want a different perspective, if you want to see something that gives a more even-handed view of what it took to win that battle, to get ashore on the beaches, and to break Hitler's Atlantic Wall, I strongly suggest Max Hastings' Overlord because it's, it's a different look, and it really opened my eyes to viewing things in World War II from a non-American perspective. I read this one fairly early. I was probably, I was probably a uh, sophomore in college. And this is the first book that made me realize that I should go look at other countries' views of World War II, not just America. So there you have it. As we work our way through time, I'm going to take us back a little bit to Shutting Out the Sky, Life and Tenements of New York, 1880 to 1924 by Deborah Hopkinson. And it is a shorter book. It is written more for children, I believe. But I think it is, sometimes I like the books for children because they just give you straightforward facts and photos. And sometimes that's all you really want. But this one is incredibly well-researched, um, lots of photographs, but it kind of takes you through an immigrant's journey uh, from going through immigration, which I, I believe that uh, Ellis Island had been opened almost at this point. It's in the works, if not, because it's opened in like 1882. So, but, but most of these people were going to be coming through Ellis Island. And then it shows, you know, their arrival with the Statue of Liberty. And then it goes through to show what their life was like. They had this, you know, dream of America and what America was going to be for them. And, you know, re reuniting with loved ones that, perhaps had gone over before because a lot of families came over in shifts. You know, they, they sent over several who came and worked and then sent back money and then to bring over the rest of their family. And I think the photos show a really interesting, as well as the commentary, show a really interesting perspective of how just crowded New York specifically got. It specifically looks at, you know, tenements on like the Lower East Side talks about the first impressions that those immigrants had. I'm not sure if I said West Side, but it's Lower East Side um, here. So it talks about Greenwich Village and the Lower East Side. And it's essentially, when you look at the photos in this book, which have been you know painstakingly curated by the author, it really just shows how it, it, it felt like the sky was being shut out by these tall buildings with people packed into them. And 
laundry lines strung up everywhere and wares being sold everywhere. It's just, it's, it's an incredibly interesting and fascinating topic. And then also just how many people can you pack into a room? Well, in the time period this book covers, there's between two and three million people in the city. Yes. Uh, that's, that's a lot, you know, and, and the only way to fit them in is to go up. And as the book goes on, it then begins to talk a little bit more about, you know, looking to the future and will it ever be different and reforms and suffrage and, you know, child labor laws and all of those things that come about in that progressive era in the early 1900s. And like, you know, did it change a lot? Did it not? Who's to say? Read the book to find out. Uh, But yes, it's published by uh, Scholastic. Again, I think it's technically written for children, but I don't. Do you know, and you may not, is, is that a product of the Tenement Museum or is it just a, a cooperative happenstance? I think it's a cooperative happenstance because it does not, because uh, I, you know, I read the author's bio because I, you know, was going through my bookshelf and I was, we had talked about the, I, I had just been thinking about that and I was like, I don't think it is. No, she, um. Spent nearly three years researching this book and made a number of trips to New York to select photographs, listen to oral history tapes, and to visit the Lower East Side. But she lives in Oregon. so I live in Gainesville, and I like Hastings. So (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) So, but, you know, she, uh, it also has so many awards and and praises. It has a whole list here. I'm glad you picked that one because it's a great example of how just because a book may seem like it's aimed at kids or even young adults. I don't think it is, though. There are some really good books that are aimed at young adults that have great pictures, that have great arguments. They're, they're just, and they sum it up better than, quite frankly, a lot of academics can, exactly. right? It, I think she does in, you know, not even 50 pages. Oh, actually, no, it's 125 pages. Well, it didn't feel like that long right. when I was reading it. Right. It felt like, you know, only 25 pages because it, it focuses more on, I think, the visual history with the photos. And then it just has, like, a little bit of an, a narration, if you will, of those photos that continues throughout the book as, as a fun little thread to connect everything together. But, yeah, I think it – I I've had this since I was young and have just always thought it was a really good book and also a look at tenement life, which I think is starting to get a little bit more light shed on it. Mm-hmm. But for a very long time, there is very little scholarship on that. Right. Well, for my last book, for this iteration, I have both chosen a book and a specific book. It is called Go Flight. And it is about the men of mission control during the Apollo era. And this author had interviewed so many of them and sort of put together the story. You know, we, we think of the, the Apollo program and going to the moon. We think of the astronauts and the machines, which is fine because that's very cool. But there's also a lot of process and expertise that had to go into mission control because those guys in there had to know everything about the machines. They had to know how to react to every possible situation. And they did react to impossible situations, and they made the the program work. It was three guys that went to the moon, but there were thousands on Earth working for it, and the guys actually in mission control were the ones who, I think, especially after reading this book, held the key to success because it took that whole team, the smartest people on the planet, so this is a great book that tells that story, and I, I, you know, I've always been interested in 
especially the Apollo program. <clears throat> so I found out about this book and I went online and I'm like, oh, here's one on Amazon. It's used. I'll get it, you know, because I can get it cheaper. So I ordered this book and I get it. And it's like, oh, someone has, it looks like there was some writing on the inside. Someone has put stickers over the top of the writing. That's, that's a bummer because it was supposed to be very good, not good condition. So I open it up and I look at it and I start messing with the stickers and I start peeling the sticker off. And I realize under the sticker, there are signatures. There are a lot of signatures. And I slowly start more carefully taking, peeling these stickers off of the front end piece and the first couple of pages. And I get the stickers off. And this was one of the guys who had worked in Mission Control. He had been at the release, the premiere of this book, where all the other guys the author had interviewed were, and he got all of his old Mission Control buddies to sign this book. And it's like got Glenn Lunny, John, you'd have to read the book to know who some of these guys are. Well, my mind just went blank. The guy who was the flight director for Apollo 13, Eugene Krantz, he signed this book. Okay, all these signatures of all these guys about the stories in this book are in this book. And someone, first of all, sold it. And then someone put stickers over it, I think because they wanted to sell it as very good and not written in. So this book has become one of the coolest books that I have. Not just because it's a cool story, and I, and, and I do recommend it, but this book has all these signatures of all these guys. And it just... It blows my mind. And I was I was like a couple of times reading the book, I was tearing up knowing that these guys had held this book in their hand. I loved it. I loved it. I doubt you'll get the opportunity to get a signed edition like I got if you order this book, but I still recommend it anyway if you want to get a really good, easy-read story of uh, uh, America's space program. My last book is perhaps one of my favorites, and it's called What Style Is It? And now you're like, Marie, I thought you said that we were not going to be talking about historical fashion. And it's, we're not. This is about what style of architecture it is. So this is A Guide to American Architecture by John C. Popeliers and S. Allen Chambers Jr. And it takes you through American architecture. And it starts with early colonial and it has pictures and beautiful line drawings. And basically it teaches you what, makes different styles of architecture different from each other and then about about what dates it was probably going to be made so if you are a person who loves to walk around historic towns or just love to go walk around historical houses you know everyone loves a good historic district right so if you have this book and it's it's slim you know you could probably fit it in your like your back pocket your purse it would take up a little bit of room but like you, you can do it uh but that way you can look and see what style is it? And impress your friends with your knowledge of historical buildings and historical homes uh, because it talks about, you know, differences between like churches, houses, public buildings a little bit. Uh, this is a general overview. So it teaches you the basics. It's a great place to start. And I read this one for my historic architecture class. And it's just, it's a really good way to get your, dip your feet into historic architecture uh, to know the differences, to know the di- time periods, 
And it makes you just appreciate things when you're walking around a little bit more because you know the history behind it or at least can guess the history behind it and then be proven right, which is probably one of my favorite things. That's why we have these books, folks, so we can learn and then prove ourselves right. Yes. Not really. Um, that's, I think that's all the time we have. Thanks for hanging out for a little bit longer version of the books that Marie and I, the history books that Marie and I love. You must have favorite books. So drop us an email or get on to our Facebook page. Write us the actual letter. Yes. We have a physical address you can send mail to. And, and let us know what your favorite history book is and why. We would love to hear from y'all. Maybe you can make some recommendations that we ourselves could take on. So I think that's it. Thanks for tuning in. It's always great to share uh, these stories with you and to have a bunch of great listeners like you. So until you hear us again, stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.